The history of Rocky Horror is a history of cinema. For everything you like about Rocky Horror, there was at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on... Episode Zero! And welcome back to episode zero, the Rocky Horror Picture Show podcast, where we don't really talk about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Synthetic flesh. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Hello. My name is Whitney Seibold. I too am a critic. That's my that's my riff. That's what riff rap says. My name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a critic. I've seen the Rocky Horror Picture Show far too many times. And uh, this week, we're going to be talking about one of the many films that is name-checked in the Rocky Horror Picture Show's opening number science fiction double feature. That's right. Uh, which name-checks a lot of movies that, uh, when the Rocky Horror Picture Show was made, were only, like, between, like, 20 and 40 years old. Yeah, nowadays, a lot of these movies seem really ancient, but name-checking this movie... When Rocky Horror did it is like name checking Ghostbusters now. Yeah. Like I'm granted it didn't have maybe the cultural impact Ghostbusters did. Maybe that's not the the best example, but this is like name checking, I don't know, Dragon Slayer. Mm-hmm. It's a movie people have heard of. It's a movie that it was on TV. It's a movie that had some traction, even though nowadays it's considered relatively obscure. Mm-hmm. Well, and we, we have to remember that uh name checking these movies was seen as uh, a little bit uh, more arch and niche and culty back in the day because mm-hmm. there wasn't home video yet. Yeah. Or if there was, it was like only in a few homes and, uh, and not, or it was like the purview of cinema collectors. People who collected like film prints and had theaters in their homes. And it really wasn't something that movies did. This mm-hmm. is actually remembered very distinctly, this huge turnover in the nineties when films like Kevin Smith's clerks came out and Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction came out. And or, or actually more accurately, I think it was Reservoir Dogs that did it. Mm. But uh, all of a sudden, there were movies that talked about how the characters in the movie had seen other movies. Mm. And well, I mean, breathless. But uh, well, I was yeah. I was going to get to that. Okay. But like in ho- mainstream Hollywood, that tended to be seen as kind of gauche, and you just didn't see it that often. There was a big subset of French films, largely French New Wave, mm. in which were made by film critics uh, who often made films about characters who went to the movies and were inspired to live their lives based off what they had seen in the movies. But yeah, in America, pretty uncommon in England, pretty uncommon. And so to have at the beginning of your big horror comedy, sexy, queer musical, a laundry list of movie references that have informed the thing that we are about to watch it's basically calling your shots. It's basically hmm. saying, "Hey, do you like do you like any of these movies? You're on. We're in good yeah. territory well, here. Uh, we're going to have a good time." the uh, The only way to see a lot of these old movies that uh, Richard O'Brien was talking about uh, when he wrote that song was uh, things you could find in like drive-ins mm-hmm. and grind houses and cult movie houses, or uh, they were on really late at night on TV. Yeah, or the yeah, late night, a, 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 picture late show. night on television. Uh, 
like on uh, on local stations that yep. were able to pick up a lot of these movies for really, really cheap. And if they wanted to stay on the air all night, not all stations did that. No. Some of them went off the air. In fact, you may still to this day see jokes about the national anthem playing on television. Yeah, a lot of people don't know what the hell that is. Yeah. They used to play the national anthem before the TV went off the air for the night. I remember TV still doing that in the 80s. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've yeah. seen it live. I've yeah. tuned into stations in the middle of the night and found them not functioning. Just snow. You can't even think yeah. about that these days. Like, it's it, not it even a thing. It has to be 24 hours. Like, oh my God, can you imagine not offering quote-unquote content? Yeah. Hmm. But yeah, so but, these uh, were these were so, things that you had to seek out. You had to stay up late, schedule your night around them, or you had to go see them at were, a particular kind of theater at a particular time. They were films for night people, the people who stayed up all night, people mm-hmm. who had night lives, and yeah. who uh, liked going to late movies and midnight movies. Uh, yeah. The concept of the midnight movie was relatively new when the Rocky Horror Picture Show came out. Yeah, uh, the first midnight movie, the story goes, was El Topo. Uh, this. Uh, theater programmer in New York got this really freaky Western by Alejandro Jodorowsky and he showed it during regular hours and nobody came. Yeah. He, nobody knew what to do with this thing. It's just this weird, freaky art Western film. It's not really a matinee kind of film. Exactly. Yeah. You don't watch it and uh, go about your day. But this one guy had the idea, wait a minute, if I show this after hours yeah, and, and this is key, I look the other way if people smoke weed in the theater. Yeah, it's very important. That's that's actually a big part of this. Yeah. Then this thing will do gangbusters, and lo and behold, it did. It and helps that this this kind of these kind of screenings largely built up in big cities where there was a major nightlife. Yeah, like people were like still coming out of bars or mm-hmm. like staying up all night at various I mean, events, and like and I think even, depending on where you live, bars were open. They didn't close at two a.m. at one yeah. point. I think they used to be open all night. This or, is something people don't uh, realize about L.A. There's no nightlife here. There are some cl- now, obviously, well, in 2020, there's go, none at all. But well, like, yeah. but you know, go go to West Hollywood. There is but, there's yeah. there are some clubs, yeah. but it's not like people. You go to New York on in a non-COVID year, mm. and you just walk around at 3 a.m. There's people everywhere. I mean, <laughs> less than in the middle of the day, but there's still mm. people up and about and doing stuff and stores that are open, and it's it's not weird. L.A. kind of calms the fuck down. Mm. After about 11 o'clock on a typical night, there are still some people around and there are like individual night spots, Mm. but mostly the town goes to sleep. Uh, But it's, it's really exciting to think that there are these secret enclaves, these little clubs, these little cult movie theaters that would be open and would be showing a lot of these cheap prints that they could get their hands on. And those are the movies that uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show is referencing in the opening song. The people who are seeing these science fiction movies and understand all those references and are also seeing a film like the Rocky Horror Picture Show are the people who go out at night to find weird stuff. It's basically calling out mm. its cult in the opening of the film. Yeah. It's basically, if you're into all this stuff, we are part of the same family right, right. now. And uh, one of the, and again, we and a lot of the films are going to be talking about, not all, but a lot of the films are going to be talking about on this leg of episode zero when we focus on the Rocky Horror Picture Show are songs that are explicitly referenced in the film and many of them are explicitly referenced in Late Night Double Feature Picture Show. This one is explicitly called out and it's kind of distinct because neither of us had seen this before and we really wanted to take this opportunity to focus on a film that would be new to us or at least both Mm -hmm. of us. And boy am I glad we did because we're about to talk 
about the mad science horror mystery cannibalism monster <laughs> synthetic flesh wacky comedy romance dr x hey what's the matter with you what's the matter with me nothing at all only all last night i lay down with a bunch of stiffs look at a lot of goofy guys let a dame poke a gun in my stomach and then i take a trick cigar from a dumb policeman it is my theory that one of us in the past from dire necessity was driven to cannibalism the memory of that act was hammered like a nail to the mind of that man. Shrewd and brilliant. He could conceal his madness from the human eye, even from himself. But he can't conceal it from the eyes of the radio sensitivity. Uh, the lyric in uh, Science Fiction Double Feature is, Dr. X will build a creature. Which is a huge... Mm. Not a spoiler, it just doesn't happen. No, it's a it's a misleading yeah. statement entirely. It I, I fits think, the song, yeah, but it doesn't actually science fit. Science fiction film. double feature, Dr. X will build a creature. Uh, yeah, Dr. Cyclops Dr. didn't have like the right rhyme scheme, mm. so we we just went with Dr. X. Dr. X, I just was just yeah. Dr. Cyclops could have fit in the meter just fine. Yeah. I Doctor Cyclops. Cyclops. Yeah, it fits just I guess right. I don't know. Maybe Doctor Cyclops didn't build the creature. I actually haven't seen Doctor Cyclops. <laughs> um, uh, but Doctor X was uh, a nineteen thirties horror movie. It was filmed in a unique Technicolor process. Oh, it was a color film. Yeah, uh, from nineteen thirty two. So the, yeah, the, and it was it wasn't full color. It was mm -hmm. this special kind of two-color dyeing process. So it yeah. was mostly just yellows and greens. Yeah. But it does make everything stand out in this dreamlike sort of way. It actually I am, looks really cool. I am completely in love with two-strip Technicolor. <laughs> I think two-strip Technicolor, I mean, it doesn't look realistic, but mm. neither did black and white. So why are we going to mm. quibble about this? Uh, two-strip Technicolor is one of the absolute best looks a horror movie can have. <laughs> I Every time I see a two-strip technicolor movie, and it was a very short-lived process, mm. audiences were ambivalent or actively didn't like it. So a lot of movie studios tried it and then backed the fuck off. Mm. And indeed, even Dr. X was filmed in two-strip technicolor and also in black and white in case people hated it. So there was there a black were, and white two, version. Two color, two cameras yeah. on set. And the versions are a little different, but mostly the same. Mm. But the two strip Technicolor is the version that we watched, and it is gorgeous and ethereal. It looks like everything has been filmed through like like a a sheet of absinthe. <laughs> it, it does have that kind of yeah. uh, weird psychedelic green shade yeah. to it. If 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 seriously like it's one of the cooler looking films it's uh i previously was exposed to this process uh in its original form when i discovered the original mystery of the wax museum made by the same crew and most and some of the same cast yeah uh mystery of the wax museum uh was the first uh wax museum horror movie with this basic setup and plot of some guy runs a wax museum and hey are all these wax uh creatures are really realistic and they're just human beings under there and it's all gruesome and gross. Uh, it was remade in the 50s, starring Vincent Price in 3D. And that movie, if you adjust for inflation, given all the times it was re-released, is still one of the 100 highest grossing films ever made. 
Ah, I think nice. it's in the it's like it's in the fifties. Okay, like it's really highly placed. This that movie was a blockbuster, <laughs> and then it was eventually remade into a Paris Hilton movie, which is not very good. It's not her fault actually. A lot of people like pointed to yeah. her and go, "Oh, she's trying to act." Like she's fine. It's the movie that sucks. In fact, I remember a part of the ad campaign for that remake yeah. was. Uh, they understood that Paris Hilton was sort of this hated celebrity figure yeah, in a yeah, lot of novelty draw. Yeah, for the so film, yeah. rather than saying "Watch Paris Act," they were actually put out T-shirts that said "Watch Paris Die." Yeah, because she dies in the film. I hope she was on board with that because boy, oh, is she, that... no, she totally had a sense I'm, of humor. I'm, I'm she, glad, I, but that still even... if that would be a little harsh if they sprung that on her. I've even seen her wearing the T-shirts okay. that say "Watch Paris Die." Well, fair but, enough. Uh, but uh, in any case, yeah, so there was a brief period in the early 30s where they were trying this two-step technical process. It was used in a variety of different films, but for my money, it fits horror. And for my <laughs> money, for the record, Mystery of the Wax Museum is the best version of that story, although Vincent Price is the best villain. Mm. So, like, you put Vincent Price in the 30s version, you've got, like, the perfect horror movie. There you go. But uh, Dr. X is a really striking, pulpy, gross weird imaginative okay. horror film in its own and it's, right and it, it, it's just really varied and and just exciting to watch it's not limited by the, genre or yeah, convention the, the, this a film this just enjoyably odd from this era you watch some of those early monster films those are weird movies they're mm -hmm. about monsters we've never seen before we take you know uh, Frankenstein's monster for granted. Granted, now, yeah, uh, it's difficult to imagine how weird that guy looked when yeah. he first saw him I, in a movie. I, back I've in seen the 30s. documentaries of like people saying, "Listen, I was a little kid when that mm. movie came out." When Boris Karloff slowly turned around and you finally saw the monster and you saw just how dead he was, I had to hide behind my chair. Yeah. That's yeah. how scary that was. It was uh, in fact, very on, novel. Of it on, on set, uh, his his co-star, I forgot who played the, the ingenue in, in oh, Frankenstein. Yeah. yeah, I forget. But, I'll look uh, that up just so we know. There was a scene where the monster sort of lurches at her through, uh, yeah. through like a, a nice uh, sitting room. And the makeup was so terrifying and he like was so imposing as the creature. Uh, mm. He had to have a little code for the actress. He said, when I May come Clark, in, May Clark uh, said to, to May Clark, when, when you see me, look at my little finger, I'll wiggle it at you. And when you see that, you'll know it's me underneath all of this monster makeup. Oh, God, that's like Bar Boris Karloff was actually very sensitive to that. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. But, but yeah, but, so, yeah, so, but th this one feels uh, odd in, in almost in almost a postmodern sort of way. Yeah, where it is blending genres in this really creative sort of way. It's taking a good deal of glee from how strange it is. This feels like something Robert Zemeckis would make today. Yeah, or maybe twenty years ago, but probably uh, yeah. more like twenty years ago in his Death Becomes or Tales from the yeah, Crypt yeah, yeah. uh, type of era. But yeah, this this movie is not like we're a horror movie, so we have to be scary all the time, which is a perfectly valid way to make a horror movie. This is a broad, far-reaching uh, uh, sort of showcase of horror entertainment. Mm. So on one hand, it's the story of a serial killer who every time there's a full moon strangles someone, takes a mysterious medical implement, rips into their skull, and eats what's inside. <laughs> With surgical instruments. Yeah, so yeah. They, they know a surgeon is involved. This is a pre-code film, in case you hadn't noticed. Remember, uh, the production code was a self-imposed system of censorship that Hollywood uh, created for itself yeah, to prevent the government from censoring it. 
Um, and it was incredibly rigid. Um, a lot of great films were made under that system, but there were enormous mm. limitations on what was allowed to be portrayed in any form, and well, this would and, not have been okay. And and to this day, we're we're still seeing it in under the the shackles of the PG thirteen rating. Yeah, the there's a certain I. expectation of how uh, movies are supposed to be. Um, so on one hand, it's a serial killer story. On the other hand, it's a mad scientist story because it turns out Dr. X is a mad scientist who is investigating the murders for the police and he's investigating all of the very mad scientists oh, who work okay. for him. The, the premise is there's a serial killer on the loose. It points to a surgeon and there's this little enclave of mad scientists who all kind of live together in the same lab. Like they have yeah. homes, but they're always working. So yeah. they're always there. And all of the murders are like located around the lab. Yeah. Like if so, it was uh, on a map, all the push pins would be like around this lab. And, and they all have really wild experiments. One of them has a living heart in a jar that's yeah. been alive for almost like three months. And I, I think it was like two years. It's like, kept this heart alive in a jar. And somebody's saying, oh, I've created an artificial brain. I've created something with skin. You know, they're all yeah. doing these, these really kind of freaky experiments. I'm reminded of the tick who said, <laughs> Said, uh, back in the old days, science would move in big leaps. Now it's just molecules, molecules, molecules. <laughs> it used to be like we'd have to study how we could do that. Now it's like, I don't know, I put a brain in a jar, shove some electricity in it. It works. <laughs> science wasn't science yet. And it's up to Dr. Axe, the title character, yeah. to investigate not only the other mad scientists, but also himself to mm. prove that he's innocent and the, as to which of these mad scientists might possibly be the serial killer. So it's a and, mad scientist detective story. Yeah. And, and all of the mad scientists have like something that points to them doing it. Like this guy is an expert in cannibalism. Mm. This guy was stranded on a, in like a lifeboat and the guy who was with him mysteriously vanished. So he might be <laughs> a cannibal. Yeah. So they're all like potentially horrifying serial killers. And the, the Dr. X, uh, who is played by uh, uh, Lionel Atwill. Uh, it's actually uh, uh, Dr. Jerry Xavier. Uh, it's, 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 it's we would call it Xavier now, but in the movie it's it's Xavier. They, they say Exa, Xavier. Is how Xavier. They pronounce it. Thank you. Um, he was just like, listen, I believe that the serial killer has endured some kind of trauma involving human flesh, and they probably don't even know that they're doing it. They're probably being triggered by something, and uh, that basically, actually, he's not entirely off base uh, yeah, in terms of like how the, serial yeah. killers work. One of one of the killers does bring up the whole uh, like lunar uh, cycle, co co yeah, the lunar cycle and how that affects people's mental state and how that's the thing that's triggering this serial yeah. killer. Like, and again, that that's not apt, but mm. like for early nineteen thirties pulp mad scientist movie, that's the kind of thing you might see in Hannibal. You know, like it's not the mm. weirdest thing. So uh, his investigation technique is awesome it's because because he, he set up essentially uh, the mousetrap from hamlet yeah where uh he's hooked up all of the mad scientists he's strapped including chairs, himself including because himself, he's a suspect uh to these uh big liquid thermometers these tall things are like 10 feet tall next to yeah. their chairs yeah that uh when they're that are essentially fear meters when they mm -hmm. somebody's like gets really stressed out and afraid it starts like the Fluid mm -hmm. inside starts rising. And then there's a giant gothic stage in front of them, mm. in, in front of which they are going to recreate one of the murders. And whoever is watching it and has the strongest reaction, that's got to be the killer. Mm. That's yeah. a weird 
good idea. And they have, and I, to, and they have to enlist uh, the, the insane gallows humor butler, Otto. Who's <laughs> <laughs> always trying to scare people just because he's a dick. Yeah, and, he's very riffraff. And, uh, and initially they have like the scullery maid mm. who is going to do it, but she's very, very fearful and she eventually backs out. And at, towards the end of the film, Dr. Xavier's mm. daughter, played by Faye Ray from King Kong, who is also in Mystery of the Wax Museum, and she's amazing in that movie, uh, she volunteers. And I'm going to skip ahead a little bit without telling you the major plot points, but in the climax, oh, this is an amazing climax. All of the mad scientists are shackled to their chairs mm. to watch this horrifying Grand Guignol nightmare mousetrap play in which one of the mad scientist's daughters is playing a murder victim and then the actual murderer shows up <laughs> and starts murdering her in front of them as they scream bloody murder mm -hmm. and desperately try to escape and save her and they can't because of what they've invented for themselves holy shit that's great that's pretty awesome and the killer uh, has like a monster face. Yeah, I want to get to the it's, killer. It's not great makeup, but it's. I, I want to talk about. Makeup. I want to save the. I want to talk about the monster reveal for the end because we haven't even gotten through the tone yet. Because <laughs> that's movie two. Movie one is a relatively serious serial killer story. Mm. Movie two is a bonkers mad scientist story. Movie three is a wacky comedy starring a plucky reporter who mm. loves novelty jokes. And he carries a hand buzzer, which uh, I thought was really corny until the last scene, which I thought was really great. Um. And the, the last, so the whole thing is he's got this hand buzzer and I guess this novelty was actually novel at the time because people were like, oh, how interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, and he keeps buzzing people with it, sometimes by accident, forgetting he has it like on his finger. And uh, yeah, he is investigating these this series of murders because that's his job. He hates his job and wishes he was doing something else. At one point, he goes back to his newspaper and says, can you put me on crosswords? Because I spent the night in a morgue and it was scary. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of like him for that, but he's also a little obnoxious. It's well, a little. He's a little obnoxious. He's a little. He is obnoxious. Yeah. He's played and he's, by Lee Tracy, and he's not a Lee Tracy who uh, would go on to be nominated for an Academy Award like thirty years after this. Yeah. Uh, so he had a, a pretty long career, mostly in films probably haven't heard of. Yeah. Uh, I kind of appreciate though that he's not a that he's not funny. Yeah. He's not a funny character. Like he intellectually structurally he is a funny character yeah that's the he, he that's the function he serves but he's, he's not like a broad stand-up comic no, he's not like laurel and hardy walked into this movie exactly the, yeah. he, he's included for comic purposes but i get the feeling that these limp attempts at humor were another way of being a little bit more self-effacing yeah uh we understand that this is a big broad frightening melodrama Putting a boring hero character in there. Yeah, you, you want someone who's going to save the day. You want someone yeah. who's going to cower in a closet. But you can't have somebody who's too funny because that would play with the tone a little bit. So what yeah. you have is somebody who thinks he's funny as the lead mm -hmm. character. And everybody's like a little bit annoyed by him. And they're as such able to keep him aside and focus on the stuff we like. You know who he reminded me of was the magic cop from Blood Moon. 
The, which which one was the magic cop? Okay, so do you remember the movie Blood Moon with Gary Daniels? Yeah, you okay. You, you recommended. Okay, uh, I, it's been a long time since I've recommended the movie Blood Moon, and I realize this might seem like uh, a, a bit of a shift, but this movie is absolutely phenomenal and needs a huge, gigantic cult all to itself. Uh, it's Blood Moon, all one word from 1997, stars Gary Daniels and an actor named Chuck Jeffries, uh, and. Chuck Jeffries plays a cop, a murder cop. You know, he's a homicide detective. Uh, and he's also an expert martial artist who will, like, backflip over the evidence at a crime scene. And then once he lands at the body, all of a sudden, I have a bouquet of flowers up my mm. sleeve because I'm also a stage magician, everybody. He's amazing. It's an amazing motion picture. It's about a serial killer who exclusively kills the greatest fighters in the world, all of whom live in the same city. <laughs> Conveniently. And uh, they have to bring in a serial killer profiler played by giant kickboxer Gary Daniels, who is also, of course, one of the greatest martial artists in the world. Uh, it's incredibly stupid. It also has, no joke, some of the best fight scenes of the 90s. Oh, absolutely. Like, Gary Daniels is amazing. Everyone in that movie was cast because they're a fighter, not because they could act. The fight mm. scenes look incredible. It's an incredibly fun watch. Please see Blood Moon. You will thank us for it. <laughs> it's really cool. But yeah, just the idea that there's this like tough, like this cop in like a, a serious seeming movie about a serial killer. And he also does magic or loves novelty buzzers or is constantly getting fooled by trick cigars, which happens. One of the first like scares in the movie is he's just sitting there on a bench and he's lighting a cigar that a cop gave him after he fooled him with a joy buzzer. And a monster appears behind him, like a horrifying figure mm. in a cloak. And we know that people are being strangled to death. And he's reaching out his hands right behind our protagonist. And he seems like a comic relief protagonist. He could die. Mm. And just when the hands are about to reach onto his neck, the cigar he lit goes bang. Mm. <laughs> and the and the monster goes, ah! <laughs> <laughs> Scares the monster away. Weird tone. <laughs> Super weird tone. Um, um, I'm reminded of uh, like some of the... Uh, when Disney animated shorts uh, mm. dealt with horror, I think they were wise to play the horror pretty straight. So mm. one, of, one of my favorite things in Disney animated films are when they do monsters and scary stuff. Yeah. Because I think they would do well to just do a straight up horror movie for kids. Yeah. Uh, I, it's always weirded me out that they, they never uh, really did. They, like, The Nightmare Before Christmas, that was a touchstone project. Yeah, that wasn't but, uh, really Disney Disney. Like they, and they, they, they will they do scary up, bits yeah. in Pinocchio or Sleeping Beauty or whatever. But no, Remember the, uh, the friends from the other side bit from The Princess and the Frog? Yeah. That's a great scary moment. Good, good scary moment. There was a, there used to be a TV special on every single year called Mickey's Halloween Treat. Do you remember this? No. It was great. It was hosted by the man in the mirror from Snow White, who oh, had this yeah. wonderful booming like oh kind of voice, and it was a collection of scary clips or Halloween themed animated shorts. Mm -hmm. So um, there was a there was a animated short with Huey Dewey and Louie called Trick or Treat. That's, where I've seen that. that that's in there. That's a classic, by the way. Watch that if you haven't already. It's wonderful. They would show the old mill, which is mm -hmm. this wonderfully spooky uh, uh, story about uh, basically nothing. It's just a beautiful thunderstorm. An, beautiful animation yeah. of 
nature and creatures and an old windmill during a thunderstorm. And it's incredibly atmospheric and eerie and wonderful. And then they would show things like pink elephants on parade from Dumbo or heffalumps and woozles from Winnie the Pooh. And it was just all the scary stuff from Disney in one place. Right. It was awesome. Yeah. I wish they put it on Disney uh, Plus because it was wonderful. So you look at those old Disney cartoons, especially when you're a little kid, and you're like, oh, I'm going to watch this Donald Duck. Mickey mm-hmm. Mouse is in it. I'm having a good time. But you're kind of terrified in your heart that yeah. something really awful is going to happen in a minute, and yeah. that's the thing you're going to take with you. You're brushing your teeth at the end of the night thinking, oh, God, I have a nightmare about that thing I Monstro. saw. Uh, Monstro. Yeah, oh, Monstro. Monstro scared uh, the crap out of me when I was a kid. I, that I, was my... That was my like, uh, a kid's thing that scared me was Monstro. Monstro was not right. So having this like non-funny comedic lead mm-hmm. in this really scary bit where like hands are reaching for the shadows and then they kind of dart mm-hmm. back. Sort of like the salt on the caramel to bring out the flavor. <laughs> Limp humor to make it seem a little bit more nightmarish. Yeah. And also to remind you that the seeming protagonists of this film aren't tough guys. No, they're they're science nerds. Mm. There's a damsel in distress. Faye Ray is is doesn't really play damsel. There's always a wonderful toughness to her. Mm. Um, she'll like whip out a gun on you for like no reason in this movie, and then of course she's put in peril. But um, regardless, she's she's portrayed with a toughness mm. uh, that I think belies the sort of damsel in distress trope. But. Yeah, none of these people are the kind of people who would punch out punch out a monster. Mm. So we're in a lot of trouble here, and the danger is very real. And the fact that there is comedy just makes the heroes more vulnerable. Mm. Um, it's a really really cool effect. So the the plot is uh, Doctor Xavier is brought in to investigate the corpse. He says, "Here's someone's eating these damn things. What are you gonna do?" And they're just like, okay, well, <laughs> what you gonna do? And they say, I'll tell you what we're gonna do. We're gonna investigate your school because it's full of a whole bunch of like mad scientists, and we think one of them might have done it. And he's just like, oh, no, 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 no. That would be bad for the school. And I'm like, it's worse for the victims. Uh, so he's like, okay, I will, I will take you to my school, and you will see that these people aren't so bad. Here's here's uh, Doctor Wells, who of course is an expert in cannibalism. And they're like, hey, whoa, oh, we can just arrest that guy. And then they go see Dr. Wells, and Dr. Wells only has one hand, and you realize that, oh, this person was strangled with two hands. Mm. So couldn't be that guy. But he does have a heart in a jar, so there is something wrong here. <laughs> then there's another guy who might actually, again, might actually be a cannibal, and a guy who's, like, really acting super mysterious, and, like, we can't let him know about our secret work. And, uh... Yeah, and Dr. Xavier says, I will do the investigation using my scientific methods, which aren't total bullshit, and uh, I will take them to my super creepy castle. To my accusing parlor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, and I will do all the experiments there, and he'll give me 48 hours, and the plucky reporter finds out about this, follows them there. He's falling in love with Dr. Xavier's daughter, Faye Ray. Mm. And he sneaks into the house and there's like a big chunk in the movie where he's just hiding in a closet full of skeletons. A lot of skeletons, like too many skeletons. (laughs) And you start looking at this house and you're realizing maybe Xavier is the killer because this place is super weird. There are scary heads everywhere. Mm. Every shot practically has like a scary head mounted on a wall like a human head like a, like a sculpture to, probably but who knows there's a, there's a wonderful shot where the reporter is sort of snooping around the 
castle yeah and opens a door and a skeleton like sort of emerges sideways it frightens him and he kind of runs and hides and it turns out Otto is just carrying a skeleton out yeah. like under his arm like he's just it, it's like ah oh, here's your newspaper and skeletons mm-hmm. sir I, I wouldn't forget it's yeah. five o'clock I love that Otto who looks exactly like John Zacherly uh, is, yeah. is sort of yeah, like does, yeah. sort of carting around all of it's like yeah here's your tea where do you want the corpse fine <laughs> Like he's the, this, this he's is, the butler in Duckula. This this was how Lurch started before <laughs> yeah. he was worn down. <laughs> before he lost his taste <laughs> for it. I, I was enthusiastic like, before when you rang before, but now it's like yeah, Lurch. You rang. Lurch grunts just because he's had enough. <laughs> you rang. Um. So yeah, the experiment begins, and on the first night where they try the experiment, one of the mad scientists is killed. <laughs> Whoops. No one knows so who not, did it. So it's not him. <laughs> no one knows who did it. And later at night, when Faye Ray is slinking around in the middle of the evening, she sees someone hovering over the corpse, sort of like hunched over his brain pan. And it looks like he's eating something. And she says, oh, it's you, Dad. And <laughs> Dr. Xavier is like, I might be the killer. And she's like, oh, crap. And he's like, oh, maybe I'm not. <laughs> it's a weird play. Anything could happen. This is based on a play. Um, the second night goes, Faye Ray has to, uh, uh, pretend to be the murder St- victim. Stand in for the scullery maid. It, it was it, it, yeah. Too, too terrifying. I mean, hey, listen, there were like, what were there? Like five, uh, uh, suspects. We've narrowed it down to four. Mm. <laughs> Great. So they're all chained in. And the only one who isn't chained in is Dr. Wells because it couldn't possibly be him. He only has one hand. And that's when the movie gets weirder. Because, and this is an incredible sequence, and I love this sequence. It's so awesome. It feels like a music video or something that should have been sampled for a music video. And for all I know, maybe it has. But uh, Dr. Wells looks at the full moon, and it starts, like, activating him. And he's like, oh, God, that's right. I am the killer. And he's like, but how could I be the killer? And that's when he pulls out synthetic flesh. Which was a, a novelty, this weird idea, perhaps, yeah. at the time. A wonderfully weird idea, yeah. where it's basically just, it looks like modeling clay, but as he, like, scoops it onto him, mm. it actually becomes his flesh, and it becomes a working hand, and he turns into this monstrous creature brought to you by Max Factor. That's right. Max, yeah. uh, and this Max Factor worked on makeup for all kinds of movies, but... Uh, I think it, this was the first time Max Factor had worked on like monster and effects makeup. I, I could be, I don't know. Mm. I could be wrong, but it is certainly very, very interesting. Uh, and um, yeah, so Max but Factor, that's, which would go on to be a major cosmetics mm. company. That, and that's uh, a fun idea, though, this yeah. idea of clay flesh, which is something that would come back in, like, Batman comics. Yeah. Uh, and, and other sources yeah, as like well. Yeah, like Clayface. Yeah, this is, totally a, this is totally a prototype for Clayface. Mm. And uh, so, so... yeah, there's this really horrifying scene where you get to see him smearing this clay on his face. And yeah, and then the turning clay... Turning himself into a monster. And the clay starts coming alive, and there's this incredible hallucinogenic effects where he's, like, filmed through smoke and weird green water as the words... Synthetic flesh. He keeps saying it over, over and over, and over again. He scoops it off. Not like this is going to be my my success. That it's just synthetic flesh. And it's I, synthetic I, flesh. My theory is is that they filmed it and they realized they had this whole sequence where he was putting on synthetic flesh, and it comes quite a few minutes before he explains what synthetic flesh is. Mm. 
So I feel like they just took one line of him saying synthetic flesh. Synthetic flesh. And just threw it in whenever his lips were off camera, which is the only time it happens. Mm. And it ends up this wonderfully odd, surreal, nightmarish quality. The just synthetic Synthetic flesh. flesh. God, I love it. (laughs) I love that whole bit. It's astonishing to look at. It looks really cool and freaky. And there's just the absolute just... We will detach ourselves from narrative convention and just throw in what would eventually be considered like music video logic. <laughs> it's really, really cool. Mm. So again, he starts actually killing Fay Ray in front of her father, who is now helpless and chained to a chair, along with all the other mad scientists. And it's up to the plucky reporter to fight Dr. X and not Dr. Wells. I'm sorry, Dr. Wells. Mm. He'd fight Dr. Wells. And um Yeah. He ends up like throwing a, a a lamp, like a kerosene lamp at Dr. Wells. Dr. Wells is on fire and he falls out a window and you see the corpse fall out the window. And you think to yourself, oh, okay, well, it's a good thing that's over. There's no way he could have survived that unless he had some kind of synthetic flesh. <laughs> synthetic flesh. Uh, this there, movie did have a sequel. There was a sequel. <laughs> it's called Return of Dr. X, which is weird because Dr. X was not the bad guy here. Dr. X is just a cool name. It's like the Thin Man. Where it's about uh, Nick and Nora Charles, these two wonderfully uh, brilliant uh, sleuths who are also fabulously witty drunks, and they solve the murder of this this guy. And there's a there's a character in, involved in the murder who's known only as the Thin Man because that's all they know is that he's thin. And uh, over time, the words "the Thin Man" became to be associated with Nick and Nora Charles to the extent that a lot of people thought that Nick Charles, the detective, was the quote unquote thin man mm. he never was but they just let it happen it's like when people call the monsters from tremors tremors they're graboids yeah. but we know what you mean we know what you mean it's like when you call the doctor doctor who we know what you mean <laughs> but return of dr x and i actually didn't see this and i kind of wish i'd made the time is a horror movie starring Humphrey Bogart as Dr. X. And in that one, Dr. X is like an undead zombie who drains blood. I want to see that. Sounds delicious. It sounds great. Uh, Dr. X is wonderful. I'm so oh, glad I, we, we chose to do this. Such one. a cool flick. Uh, it just, it, it's, it's, it's all over the place. It's funny. It's scary. It's weird. And it looks amazing. Uh, how does this relate to Rocky Horror? Apart from just being name checked in the credits, and um, uh, I was thinking about how yeah. um, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, because it's staging itself as a science fiction double feature kind of film, mm. and because it has a narrator, and because Brad and Janet are such artificial characters, that there is a kind of meta narrative quality to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Okay. Uh, um, Charles Gray plays the the narrator, the, the criminologist, the criminologist yeah. who uh, is, is just saying, and Brad and Janet are going to find Dr. Everett Scott, and they get, what if the floor show? Like, he knows what's going on in the movie, and then at the very end, he just says, we've lost all meaning. <laughs> he's, the one, he's the one who says it. Like, what's yeah. the meaning of this thing? It's, we've lost, we've lost the plot. It's like he's half late night horror movie host and half hygiene video doctor warning you about, yeah, yeah. about sexually transmitted infections. So, so a, a yeah. lot of what we're seeing in the Rocky Horror Picture Show is his story. He's telling this. And mm-hmm. indeed, they call attention to the fact that this is 
very movie-like uh, in the big uh, dance number climax, the floor mm. show. Yes. Where uh, Dr. Frank appears in full drag and he's on standing in front of the RKO logo. Yeah. Uh, like he is in the movie. And then he, the first line he sings of, of his part of that song is whatever happened to Faye Wong. Yeah. And, uh, and the idea of like mad scientists involved in mad theater is mm. very directly taken from Dr. Yeah. X. And, yeah. and uh, it, so it all comes into this uh, meta narrative because you said, as you mentioned, Dr. X was based on a play. And there was this long tradition uh, that started in France of what was known as Grand Guignol. Mm-hmm. It was a sub- subgenre of theater that was deliberately gory and repellent. Like, they would just spill blood off of the stage. Yeah. Uh, they were typically held in these really stuffy underground uh, theater houses, uh, not smiled upon by anybody. These were, like, really far off to the end. It was the midnight movies of the time. It was very lurid. Yeah. yeah. And the, the whole point was that they had to be as lurid as possible. And this idea of the mad scientists sitting and re watching their own crimes reflected back to them on stage, like in Hamlet, another meta narrative mm. uh, is I think trying to bring the audience into that meta narrative that we understand that this is a gallows grand guignol play mm-hmm. that we're witnessing just from yet another uh, audience removed because now we're in a movie theater. Right. I think and I, I'm thinking, I, I think uh, something, and I'm yeah. thinking, uh, uh, Richard O'Brien saw that and thought, well, that's a good way to stage this big, silly, queer musical. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's treat it like it's this grand guignol thing being narrated to us by an outside presence. And I, th- and I think beyond that, mm-hmm. I think, I think you're onto something there. You, mm-hmm. you, I think you, you dug a little deeper maybe than I did, but oh, well. For me, one of the things that I think is that I'm looking at this film and I'm looking at Mystery of the Wax Museum, too, and they're a great double feature. And we haven't even talked about who directed these things. These were directed by Michael Curtiz. <laughs> who did Captain Blood. And, and Casablanca. And Casablanca. <laughs> he, he would, he's an incredibly prolific filmmaker who became incredibly well known as the director of some of the best motion pictures ever made. Well, and, and he also churned out a lot of stuff. Keep in mind, Casablanca was uh, just a studio monster. Yeah. It was, was never intended to be this important work of art. Yeah. It was well-timed because of where we were in world war two and it had a wonderful mm-hmm. cast and a great script, but yeah, it was kind of accidentally the perfect movie. It was just supposed to be a really satisfying so, Hollywood picture. So Michael Curtiz, you know, we think he, he directed Casablanca. He had this vision. Well, you look at his career. He was a journeyman. He, yeah. he was a work, And we, and a we don't mean that like, in a negative way. We no, mean that he not. worked for hire he, he and he would do anything. And he did anything and he did it well. Um, all kinds of different genres from the silent era onward. Horror, comedy, romance, Pirate movies, mm-hmm. action movies, giant blockbusters. In fact, he, he was better known for this kind of genre stuff and action pictures when he was chosen to make Casablanca. Mm-hmm. And I think his action sensibilities, his way of cutting and doing bigger dramatic moments mm-hmm. <clears throat> served him well doing a World War II drama. Yeah. So it's actually, it, it just plays like a motherfucker these days. You yeah. watch Casablanca. It's, that's why it's so engaging because it's, Action filmmaking. Yeah, it's incredibly excitingly told. But just just real fast, I just want to give people like because you could really spend like a whole year watching nothing but Michael Curtiz movies and not have a lot of time left over. Uh, some movies that he did, just to give you the heads up. In addition to Doctor X, in addition to Mystery at the Wax Museum, 
the uh, Captain Blood, one of the great pirate movies, The Adventures of Robin Hood, one of the foundational action movies mm. upon which almost all action movies afterwards owe at least something to. The Academy Award nominated uh, Four Daughters, which is this like modern uh, little women kind of riff. Mm. Uh, Angels with Dirty Faces, a truly awesome uh, uh, gangster picture. Uh, the Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex with uh, Betty Davis. Uh, the Seahawk, another great pirate picture. <laughs> Casablanca, Yankee Doodle Dandy, one of Yankee the great Doodle. old school Hollywood biopics. Uh, Mildred Pierce, one of uh, oh, that's right. jo- did got Joan Crawford, her yeah. best actress nominee uh, picture, best actress Oscar. Um, he did White Christmas, for God's sake. He so, was a monster mm. who kept churning out films. Many of them are forgotten, but the ones that are good are good in large part because Michael Curtiz had this funny way of making anything work. <laughs> you know, a lot of people are just like, yeah, you know, kind of like certain filmmakers seem to kind of make variations on the same movie over and over again. Mm. Michael Curtiz did everything. Yeah. Fucking amazing. Think of somebody and he started like with a... these, and one of, didn't start, but like, and he made these like really creepy, wonderful horror movies. Think of somebody like Robert Aldrich or Jack Hill, like these, these directors who can take any genre and just yeah. go. Oh, you gotta uh, love or, it. Or like even Stephen Frears. Oh, uh, Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg makes action mm. movies, serious dramas. Mm. He's made horror movies. He's done like comedies. That's true, and he's done a, a, yeah. a, a bits of all of those and, things. And throughout. he puts himself in it, but like it's pretty <clears throat> impressive how he's able to adapt his sensibility mm. to almost any kind of movie, and usually make something that's at least really good, mm. and often make a legit classic. Uh, I'm I've seen several Michael Curtiz movies, uh, not just Casablanca, and. Yeah. I've always been impressed with that kind of workmanlike philosophy he seems to bring to his film. Just shoot it as best he can. Yeah. Whatever it is, do, it's not, do the best It's rarely can. showy. It's um, just always doing the scene as well as that scene can be done. Dr. X is an outlier. Yeah. Because oh, and you should see so... Mystery of the Wax Museum because it's also just like okay, this. I haven't seen Mystery of the it's Wax so Museum. It's so fucking cool. Uh, because it's so odd. Yeah. Uh, there actually does seem to be a lot of personality behind something like this. And I would not have been surprised if you said... This was actually like a, a failed Todd Browning project. Mm-hmm. Todd Browning, who did Dracula and uh, was was huge in the silent era, and then like he did Dracula. Huge, huge in the then... silent era, he did a, a really wonderful movie called The Unholy Three, which I recommend. Uh, he did The uh, Unknown, didn't he? Wasn't that his? That was also oh, a, God, a Todd Browning film. film. Yeah. He, yeah, his most famous film is Dracula, and uh, after Dracula, he did a film called Freaks, which pretty much drummed him out of Hollywood because it was too weird. It was very controversial. To this yeah, day, it's, it's considered very, it's, very yeah, controversial. Be- because it's it's an interesting drama, and it's a great horror movie, but it's also undeniably exploitative. Yeah. Uh, and the, there you d- go. There it is. Yeah. Uh, but Todd Browning clearly had a great deal of affection for, for the people he was working with. Mm-hmm. He was actually trying to put uh, the, the circus performers that he knew personally yeah. uh, on the screen in a big sort of way. Yeah. And, and they're just good. It's it. just, it's, it's a film that exploits mm. the audience's uh, a negative reaction to that. Yeah, and it's, mm. it's, it's gross, but it's also fascinating. And if it's, nothing else, it's a fascinating and, part of film and, history. And, uh, and the, the characters are all heroic characters. Like yeah. they're, they're presented in sort of a monstrous way, but and they're anti-heroic they're, by the end, but yeah, but they're getting revenge, you know, yeah. ju- justly getting revenge. Yeah. It's just, it's just in a tales from the crypt kind of way. Yeah. But in any uh, case, but, but yeah. he, he, he was a filmmaker who had a lot of really strange interests and was always trying to push these like weird projects in yeah. the studio system. 
that's what Dr. X feels like to me. Like somebody, a filmmaker with really odd interests trying to get their vision up. And that's, and that's kind of my point. I feel like Rocky horror is an ode, not so much to just sci-fi and horror of the past, but the Mm. ones that managed to have personality and be odd Mm. and to evoke something beyond vampires. Right? Like, no, it's like, (laughs) no, there's weird, kooky, sexy, violent, disturbing, like weirdly scientifically forthright while also completely nonsensical (laughs) about this movie. And it's this movie that again, the horror genre as we know it was still being sort of molded out of fresh synthetic flesh. (laughs) And yeah, there was a lot of freedom to just kind of throw anything at a wall and just make not a horror movie, but I think this is probably the more accurate way to, to call this and Mystery of the Wax Museum and some other films of the era. It's a weird movie. Mm. And I don't mean like, oh, it's weird. No, I mean like weird fiction. Fiction that is designed to push the boundaries of your imagination and to keep you on your toes and to keep you off kilter Mm -hmm. based on the sudden whiplash elements of the narrative, because there is no limit to your imagination. Why would we limit ourselves to tropes that you're familiar with or ripping off stuff that you're familiar with? We're just going to throw every big idea in the mix. We're going to throw comedy in the mix. We're going to throw romance in the mix, action, horror, science fiction, all of that. And that's what Rocky Horror is too. Although I feel it's a bit more directed and what they're taking all the stuff that felt subtextual or almost accidental mm-hmm. and making that the A feature, making yeah, that the yeah. point. So this Rocky Horror feels like this all grown up in a way. Uh, all th- this, uh, when, you know, some, per- <laughs> gotta say it, some precocious potheads got a hold of it. And right. R- Richard O'Brien has admitted as much. That he, somebody, I got to go to a convention, Richard O'Brien was there in person, and somebody stood up and said, what what the hell is going through your head? That, that was the question. Like, yeah. You did, you made the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Why? What, 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 <laughs> what, what did this? And and he said, uh, he just said, it's called marijuana. And everybody just <laughs> cheered. Yay! Uh, I always I found that a little bizarre. Mm. You can get up on a stage and say beer, and everybody goes, "Yay!" <laughs> really? It, Weed? It, Yay! Look, we're all here to have a shared experience. Yeah. If you say if you say something, we all agree with. <laughs> we go, mate. I know that. Let me try another one. Lasagna? Ooh! Everybody, Yay! everybody loves Raymond. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, Dr. X, awesome movie, uh, pretty readily available on streaming. Please check it out if you haven't already. It is wonderful. Yeah, it looks great. It's just such, such a party. Yeah. And I haven't seen the black and white version. I do want to check that out at some point. Mm. But again, the two-strip technical version is oh, wonderful. And it was almost lost. For a long time, only they, the black and white version was uh, available. They found it in the home of one of the Warner Brothers. Yeah. Jack Warner collected prints, and yeah. uh, they thought it was lost, and it was like in the 1950s after he died. Yeah, and they ended up... They uh, went through his film collection, and he had a copy. And the UCLA archive, like, you know, preserved it. it. Yeah, it's, it, it was Cleaned on, it up a little. It's great. Well, they, they first of all, they made a dupe because it was on nitrate film, and yeah. which, you know, you look at it funny, and it bursts into flame. So, uh, yeah, the... 
you can still see it at the UCLA archive. And indeed the version I saw on streaming was the dupe from the UCLA archive. Yeah. And everyone it had that UCLA tag. At the and, and every once in a while, the UCLA archive, I, I don't know when the last time they did it, but every once in a while they've shown nitrate prints. And if you ever get a chance mm. to see a movie on a nitrate print, You'll realize, maybe not here because it's too technicolor, but you'll realize why they used to call it the silver screen, mm. because it looks like silver. It's well, the coolest it, looking film strip you'll ever have. Well, the screens and, used to be reflective. They were silver mm, screens. Well, regardless, mm. like, the point is, is that the, the nitrate looks different. Mm. Nitrate shimmers in a different way, is my point. So yeah. um, I'm just saying that, you know, everyone's all just like, oh, yeah, well, you know, really want to see a movie you gotta see it in 70 millimeter on IMAX like call me when Christopher Nolan does something on nitrate <laughs> I fucking like, dare you Christopher Nolan would not shoot a film on nitrate Quentin Tarantino would <laughs> P.T. Anderson might yeah. uh, or if they could do like an, an old uh, imbibition technicolor dying process oh that'd be cool uh, Martin Scorsese recreated the two strip technicolor process for part of the aviator Oh, yeah. Uh, which is uh, really, I love that movie very, very much, especially if you're an old school Hollywood nerd. There's a lot of wonderful stuff in it. And one of the clever things he does is as he walks through the life of Howard Hughes, the appearance of the movie, or at the very least, the color timing matches what color filmmaking looked like at that time. And there's a chunk mm. where he's like romancing Kate uh, Blanchett in like the 30s, and it looks like two strip tech to color, and it's fucking great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's really cool. Um, I, think, I think it's probably Kate Blanchett. Anyway, it's in there. It's really cool. Um, all right, so uh, that is episode zero for this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week with, as curated by Whitney Seibold, <laughs> hygiene movies. The image of the wholesome American teen was communicated perhaps most explicitly through classroom films. Yeah, they used to wheel out a little projector in the back of a classroom and they would put in like eight millimeter, maybe 16 millimeter film stock. And they would show these like little documentaries or how to films that not only would try to be educational, maybe, but were also enforcing the way white America was supposed to be. Yeah. yeah. And it's it basically is... where Brad and Janet grew up was it... in the universe of hygiene films. And, and, uh, those hygiene films have been the an endless source of mockery. My my mom was born in 1950, yeah, and she tells stories of watching these hygiene films because they were a lot of these hygiene films were made in the 1950s and they were shown in classrooms until the 80s. Just yeah. they had these old films around and would just call them out anytime they were appropriate. I, I actually saw a few when I was in school. Yeah, yeah. And some of them are still informative. Like you know, heart valve still works the same way, so you can watch. Yeah, it, you I, know, I watched one in biology yeah. class. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. A, a chameleon hasn't evolved that much. So let's yeah. uh, <laughs> since the 1950s. Yeah, but the chameleon isn't pr promoting its values. It's I just suppose, the chameleon. That, but, yeah, but like a, a lot, lot, of, lot of these, a are... lot of these sort of uh, what we we tend to refer to as like traditional conservative American values from the 1950s. Uh, those leaked into mainstream media. You'll see yeah. it most in like uh, Disney films, but or uh, sitcoms of the or, era, or, my yeah, three sons there you kind go, of sitcoms thing yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it was just sort of most explicit in these films. And yeah. I think it's worth looking at some of these shorts yeah. 
and kind of delving into uh, what what was going on. You've probably seen, again, if you're listening to us, there's a decent chance you're familiar with Mystery Science Theater 3000. A lot of these hygiene shorts, not not like the majority or anything, but quite a few, uh, were sort of usurped uh, uh, by Mystery Science Theater 3000 whenever they were riffing on a movie that was too short. <laughs> they'd, they'd throw in one of these little hygiene shorts. Yeah. So it'd be like X marks the spot, which is about like why you should be a more careful driver because otherwise you're going to hell. That's an actual thing. Here, here's a video about how great it is to go skiing. Yeah. A day at the fair. Yeah. Life on the farm. Don't forget to wash yourself. Like that's a whole thing. I think we're actually doing that one. Uh, body, know, his body care and grooming. That's what that one is. You know, it's fun to have an idea. There, wasn't that fun? <laughs> oh, that was the one about... Uh, was, uh, why uh, study industrial arts? Which was from the director of Carnival of Souls. Yeah, Herc Harvey. He also, yeah. I think he also did body care and grooming. Nice. Um, anyway, so we're going to be reviewing a, a, a selection of those. I will try to get Whitney to solidify. I put Whitney in charge of this one. Um, I, I'm going to select the shorts. Yeah, and um, I don't. Want, I want to make sure they're not all from MST3K. <laughs> I no, have a few extra. At least on one or two are going to be, just because those are some we, big ones. But they're, yeah. they're big ones, and we know them well. But yeah, uh, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll find some others as well. Uh, but uh, yeah, so we'll be we'll be talking about those, and hopefully Whitney can like put together a list, and we can like release that list on Twitter for those mm-hmm. of people who like to uh, watch these movies along with us and have already have seen them when we did episode zero. So uh, thank you everybody for listening. You're wonderful. We think you're really just the bee's knees. Uh, you're 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 more than welcome to uh, write in if you want to talk about this episode or any of our other stuff. Our email address is letters at criticallyclaimed.net. Uh, we might read your letter on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. We're also on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. You're also more than welcome to join us over at Patreon. Patreon.com slash Critically Acclaimed Network where we have a ton of exclusive stuff. We have... Uh, uh, exclusive podcasts about Star Trek, 1960s Batman, the Academy Awards, which we're planning to catch up on later this month. Uh, we've got a commentary track for Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, uh, which we just released uh, to our top tier patrons uh, about a week ago. Luca, stop knocking things over. Oh, wait, Sergio, stop knocking things over. Oh Sergio. Sergio. So disappointed in you. Uh, you set a better example for your younger brother. Um, but uh, anyway, we got a whole bunch of stuff over at Patreon, and we're especially grateful to all of our patrons, without whose support none of our shows would exist. So thank you very, 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 very much. From the bottom of our hearts, we we are incredibly grateful mm-hmm. to you. And we hope everyone is being very safe right now, and I hope everyone is having a very happy holiday season, whatever that means to you. Whether you're celebrating a holiday or just trying to get through December without pulling your hair out. Uh, so thank you everybody once again for listening and we hope you shiver with Antis. Synthetic flesh.